We're grateful you're here today. This is a holiday weekend, I recognize, but uh, we're, we're getting ready to kick off God Talks. We're going to kick it off with fasting, so it's only right that today I explain what that's all about, right? We can talk about biblical fasting and what that really is all about. We're going to be looking at the book of Esther, uh, chapter 4, so if you want to find your place there, and then I would like to also encourage you to Isaiah chapter 58. We're going to take a look at Isaiah 58, so two places there in your scripture uh, in the Bible you want to you hold and we'll take a look at. But first we'll be looking at Esther chapter 4 beginning at, at verse 15. How many of those of you have around you a granddaughter or a child or something that is um, uh, four, five years old or younger? You have been around them, okay, several of you have. And how many of you are familiar with I'm going on a bear hunt? Is there... Anyway, so, okay, all over the place, uh, this has become like huge for that age group. I'm going on a bear hunt. You know, um, I'm not afraid. And uh, then all the, the things that happen on, uh, as they go along the bear hunt. So I thought today we would say, I'm going on a fast. All right? Uh, so I'll say it and you can repeat it after me. Are you ready? I'm going on a fast. I've got my Bible. I'm not afraid. Uh-oh, a trial. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We can't go around it. I guess we'll have to go through it. I'm going on a fast. I got my Bible. I'm not afraid. <laughs> Thank you so much for hanging out with me. If the kids' class was here at preschool, they would be so excited that you learned that and you were able to, to recite it together. And if you haven't seen this, just take a moment to later after service and YouTube it or something, and you'll find it all over the place. You're going on a bear hunt. They even have a shark one now, and all kinds of ones, so lots of fun. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> all right, we're in the book of Esther, and we're going to be talking about fasting. Esther calls for a fast. We'll explain as we go through the story together. Uh, the book of Esther is awesome. I would encourage you that this would be a good week while you're fasting to go back and read the book of Esther. A great, great story incredible uh, way that God uses Esther and her cousin Mordecai. Here we go, beginning at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found. I'm sorry, I didn't ask you to stand. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Heavenly Father, we come to you inviting you to enlighten us to your word today. And Lord, the importance of biblical fasting. 
something that we need to put in our habit on a yearly basis, that we would uh, come and, and, Lord, take time to fast, to seek your face, and to hear from you, to quiet the flesh, that we might hear what you have to say to us and follow your directions. We ask that you would inspire us, encourage us as we go together as a church uh, to, to accomplish the things that you've called us to do here. And we're going to give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you're seated. The book of Esther takes its readers um, into a world of, of powerful and, and wealthy Persian royal court, if you will. The Persians uh, came into power throughout the ancient world under Cyrus the Great at about 560 B.C. and uh, continued their, their dominance until the conquest of the Greeks uh, under Alexander the Great, which was around 33, 333 B.C.E. Now, under the, the Persia, uh, the Jews were subject to uh, this powerful empire, as they had been subject to the empires prior of Egypt, of Assyria, and Babylon, and, uh, and now the Persians. And as they uh, soon would be later in, uh, down the road to the Greeks and uh, to Greece and also then to Rome. The Persians' court, as described uh, in Esther, is... It's, it's rich, it's powerful, it's, you know, your imagination runs wild as you, you kind of try to get an idea of this great empire. And the people, uh, you know, uh, are dealing with palace intrigue. There's lots of little things, and we'll talk about a couple of those that are uh, intriguing about the court uh, and the palace court. And, and they were also subject, the, the, the Jewish people, to the, to the whims and the powers of, of the, the, the foreign uh, power that was over them, and, and we, we see the, the inevitable scapegoating, uh, or scapegoating of, of these foreign peoples. You know, it's, it's always the case with these, these great empires that if something is going wrong, it must be the fault of the people that are enslaved to it, and there's something they're doing wrong. And so they were subject to this. You, we find in this time in history the Jews are uh, now a people of dysphoria. You know, um, there is, there's good cause for, what, for, God, for the reason God has spread the Jewish people throughout the nations of the world in history. They would not go of their own accord. Uh, like Jonah, <laughs> many of them were refusing to get on the ship and go where God was sending them. And so God dispersed them out throughout the nations, and many times uh, they were carried away by other nations. And the reason why God would want that was because wherever they went, they took with them the Torah, the book of God, the, five, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all of the other books as they began to be gathered together, the historic books of the Bible, and they, they began to take these wherever they went. And so wherever God placed His people, His people brought God's Word. Isn't that great? And so they're in what's called the sporia or the scattering in the ancient world. And Esther provides inspiration as they try to discern how to live in this foreign land. The book of Esther really uh, is, is an inspirational book for them. Uh, but uh, during this time, her, her life and how she lived it out was very inspiring for them. They're learning to, to balance the call to assimilate into society and to serve the capital city of, of Susa, where they now live with the continued need to maintain their own separate identity as a people. 
to, to recognize that their God is God and, and that to have worship and to have their, their festivals and things like this and to remain uh, the people of God. And in all this book, the, the book of Esther helps them to uh, discern the presence of God in a time and a place uh, that where, where God seems to be quite absent. During the seasons of, of having these powers over them, there were many moments in time where they, I'm sure they felt uh, powerless and that God was not hearing or listening to them. He had turned his back on them, they may have felt. And so this is a key book and a key time and a key story and a key moment in the history of Israel and for us as well. Throughout the scriptures, God's people practiced fasting and prayer when they needed most to hear from God. And this is a time when they needed most to hear from God. But as we kind of clip through the Bible and look, we see that Moses fasted before receiving the commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Elijah fasted uh, while escaping Jezebel in 1 Kings. Ezra fasted while mourning over sin in Ezra chapter 10. Daniel fasted for an answer to prayer in Daniel chapter 10. Paul fasted after his conversion in Acts chapter 9. The church elders at Antioch uh, fasted before sending out missionaries. They wanted to hear from God in, in, in Acts chapter 13, and so they fasted. And before his ministry began, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where he fasted 40 days. Fasting has always been a significant part of our walk and in our life as believers and followers of God. And in both the Old and New Testaments, we see pictures of it. But in this instance, two generations had passed since the first large group of exiles had returned to the Promised Land. And a generation before the next group would return under Ezra. However, the Jewish people throughout the entire Persian Empire are now under threat of extermination. That's where we pick the story up. That's the words of Esther when she's uh, being told by her cousin, you need to intercede with the king. And she says, before I go talk to the king, I want everybody praying. I want to pray. I want to fast. I want us to hear from God before we make a move, before we make any decisions, before I make a move towards going into the presence of the king. Now that speaks to one of the things that are intriguing about the palace of that time, and that was that you could not come before that king um, it, it just uh, if you wanted to come or if you had an issue. Uh, there was, uh, you had to be summoned to the king, and especially in this instance with the queen. She could not just show up uh, in the palace courts and expect that the king was going to see her. She had to be summoned. We'll hear a little more about that story in just a moment. But the story begins in the courtyard of King Xerxes, and on the seventh day of a great feast is how Esther opens up in chapter 1. It's, it's the beginning. Before we know Esther, we know this king, and we know this great feast that he was throwing, and he had a queen, and her name was Vashti. And he determined, after he was inebriated and all of his friends were inebriated, that he wanted to show all the wonders of his kingdom, and that included showing off Vashti, who he thought was beautiful. And he wanted to bring her out and parade her before all these other men. Now, I, I love the fact that Vashti refused to go. <laughs> she could have been my daughter, I'll tell you. 
Uh, you don't put yourself in that kind of position. And she, she refused to go, though she knew the consequences of being summoned by the king and not going. She could have lost her life, but scripture tells us that didn't happen, that the king decided he was, he was agonizing over it. He must have loved her. He must have thought greatly of her. And he decided just to vanish her from the kingdom. So Vashti's vanished, right? She's gone. And that sets up the stage for the entrance of Esther. Because as the king is mourning over the days, and he's very sad, and, and he's, he's missing Vashti, and he's thinking, maybe I made a mistake, and you know, I drank too much, and I wish we wouldn't have had that party, and on and on like this, all the regrets that we might have of having had a, a wild night that we allowed ourselves to go uh, unruly and undisciplined, and now here he finds himself depressed and discouraged. Some of his counselors gathered around and said, why don't you just get another queen, you know? And so they went out and gathered women uh, all over the, the kingdom, beautiful young women, and they brought before him. And, uh, of course, Esther, uh, as you read in the story, she was the one that, that caught his eye. And uh, she, she, all of the rest of them were interested in putting on, uh, you know, Maybelline and, and cosmetics and, and all kinds of jewelry, and she had such a natural beauty, she just said, I'm going to, to let the person who's in charge of the harem here decide what I should wear. And he did almost nothing with her, just brought her out before the king. She had such a great natural beauty, and it just intrigued him. He thought, this is awesome. Here is the most beautiful woman in the kingdom, and she's not even put on any makeup or, or any earrings or anything. She looks great. She looks awesome. And so he was taken by her. And uh, there's more to that as you begin to read through the story than just her beauty. There must have been so much about her personality and so on and so forth because the king really does fall in love with Esther. And you, it's, it's a great love story from that perspective. He really uh, looks to her and thinks of her as his wife and as the queen. Unknown to him, though, Esther is Jewish. She hides that from the king. She doesn't tell him, and no one else tells him. No one else knows of it in the palace. Now, Esther has a cousin, Mordecai, and Mordecai is an interesting figure in the story as well. And he is, uh, he's the one that's encouraged her. You know, in the beginning, he says, who knows but what God has called you for such a time as this. You know, this is, uh, God may use you greatly and place you here in, in this moment, in this time to to be a, a person who would rescue uh, his people. And so Esther's cousin, who loves God with all of his heart, Mordecai, he at one time is standing around the court of the king, and he overhears uh, two men talking about killing the king. And so he tells that to Esther, who tells that to the king, and that also, of course, brings uh, her closer in trust and affection to the king, and he's able to, to stop this, this act of assassination, this attempt assassination, and get rid of those two characters that had thought about it. Now, about this time, there enters, you know, the villain of the story. Every story has a villain, right? And uh, the villain is Haman, and he's a, a self-promoter, and, and uh, he's, he's one of those guys that, you know, he's the classic, you know, political guy that's always... 
you know, supposedly in the right place at the right time to be seen and to be noticed. And, and uh, he's always taking the credit for everything, the things he did and the things he did not do and, and so on and so forth. Whatever it is that, you know, he, he, he wants the focus on him. And so Haman's entered the picture and, and Xerxes, uh, you know, begins to promote him and, and brings him up the ladder and begins to trust him because he's around at the right times and he's doing the right things. And so uh, this, the bad news about Haman is his, he's a sworn enemy of the Jews. He hates the Jews. And so he seeks to, uh, a plan to, to destroy them and he uh, gets Xerxes to approve that plan. He tells him, he said, there's a group of people who worship another god. They don't worship you. They don't really care about you. And they're, they're discouraging the people, leading the people astray. We should get rid of them. And the king signs off, probably not paying that much attention to what he's signing. And so now we have the, on a given day in time, that the Jewish people are to be exterminated. Mordecai urges Esther, and that's where we're reading today in the text, to try to save her people by appealing to the king. And Esther calls for a fast for three days before uh, Esther speaks to Xerxes. And at this moment, it would be a good time for us to examine what is fasting and why should we practice it and why is it important. And I want to give you a simple definition, and then later we'll talk about, uh, it, we'll bring this out a little bit more about what fasting is not and what fasting is, okay? Simple definition for biblical fasting is it is an exercise of spiritual discipline for the purpose of lowering the voice of our flesh so that we can better hear the voice of the Spirit of God. And that's what Esther wanted. She wanted to hear the voice of God. At this point in the narrative, all the Jewish people of the earth are about to be executed. And, and what Esther wanted most of all was to know what next steps God wanted and God had ordained. And she, we read that a moment ago. She said, hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days night and day, and I and my young women will also fast and, 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 as you do. Now, if she was calling this fast to get God to rescue her and her people, uh, it would, she would have made that clear in her statement. She would have said, you know, we need to fast that all of us will be saved, that, that this, the king won't do what he's going to do. We need to go to God and tell God that this is what we want. And, 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 and so we're going we're gonna to just not eat to show God we're serious about this and that God should listen to us, right? But she doesn't say that. Esther recognized the sovereignty of God. And what does sovereignty of God mean? It means that God will do what God wills to do. God will do what God wills to do. And so Esther's not hold, holding a hunger strike. Esther's call, her call for fasting, was an attempt not to twist God's arm and get him to agree with her idea of how things should go. Uh, but he, he, her calling this fast was that all that that she she loved God, she she trusted God, and so she wanted to be in line with what God wanted. God, whatever you've decided, whatever your will is going to be, put me in the right place. And you can tell that by, by the way she finishes her statement. She says, uh, she, she goes on to say in the statement that I will go, after you've fasted, I will go before the king, even though it's, it's, it's against the law. 
It's against the law for me to come into that courtroom in the presence of that king and, and have him hear me or see me or notice me when he hasn't summoned me. I will do that after we prayed and fasted and heard from God. And if I perish, I perish. You see, God's sovereign will has been decided. And what God is willing to do, He will do. And I'm willing to, to, to live with those consequences. But first, I want us to hear from God. And then I'm going to go. And whatever God's decided... I'm willing to accept. If I perish, I perish. She was willing to, to accept whatever outcome that God had for her life. It's, it's a powerful moment in, in the history of the Jewish people. And, you know, it's, it's amazing that, you know, we talked about two generations later, they, they are going to be, the, the, uh, the children of Israel are going back to build the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah. You can read about it in their books. And it was because of Esther making the stand right now, they're still alive to go do that. <laughs> they can tell the story of Esther because she stood and heard the voice of God and called all of Israel to hear the voice of God. We are here today to rebuild God's temple and to rebuild His house. I want to talk with you for a moment on the application side of three things that fasting is not. And that comes out of the book of Isaiah uh, chapter 58. And three things that fasting does accomplish, okay? So let's take a look at three things that fasting is not. Isaiah chapter 58, beginning at verse 2, verses 2 and 3. For day after day they seek me out. This is God talking. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me, for just decisions. And you can see in this, they already have an idea of what a just decision is, right? They haven't been following God and listening to Him, but now they're holding a hunger strike to tell Him what, what is a good decision. That's what their fasting was about. And they seem eager for God to come near them. Why have they fasted? They say, uh, and you have not seen it? God, you're not noticing me getting skinnier? <laughs> Why have we, he, he, uh, we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Didn't you notice my grocery bill was a lot less this week? Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Skipping down to verse 5, is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it not for bowing one's head like a reed? For lying sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Three things this passage tells us and the Bible tells us about biblical fasting. That fasting is not. Biblical fasting is not a hunger strike to get God to do what you want God to do. And if that is our intention in entering in, don't enter in, just keep eating. <laughs> the world does hunger strikes, right? There, there are people, you know, that, that are doing it against governments and against, you know, there are people probably for climate change or, you know, for political reasons or whatever that are hosting hunger strikes. And their whole goal is to change the mind of decision makers, to get them to turn it around. And we sometimes have taken that to apply to a sovereign God. And it won't work. God has decided and he will do 
what he wills to do. So don't go into it as a hunger strike to try to twist God's arm to do something that we think might be more favorable than what is happening. The second thing that we learn from reading this, these passages is that uh, fasting is not. It's, it's not uh, a, a public uh, action intended to impress people around us. God doesn't want us holding a fast so that everybody around us can see us get skinny and, and put away food and how diligent we are and how great we are and how we must believe what we're practicing and what we're doing. It, it, in fact, he, he uh, tells us in many instances that we should be living life in normalcy uh, when we are fasting so that other people don't even know. You know, that we are fasting. We're not calling attention to ourselves uh, as a result of going into a fast. We are answering the call of God and the Holy Spirit upon our lives to go into that fast. And, and we're not trying to get anyone else's opinion or ideas, uh, you know, surrounding that about how good uh, we are, what a great person we are for uh, making this kind of a disciplined action. The third thing is it is not a religious act to virtue signal heaven. You know, something that we are checking the box on and like, you know, I, I tithe, you know, I read the Bible, fasted. It's done, you know. Um, it's not that at all. So let's talk about what it is. Three things biblical fasting will accomplish. As we read on here, uh, beginning in verse 6 of uh, Isaiah chapter 58, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with hungry, with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood when your light will break forth then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You will, uh, then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. The first thing that we see in this uh, picture of what fasting does is number one, it breaks the yoke that the enemy has over our lives. It breaks the yoke the enemy has over our lives. Quieting the flesh, saying no in, in one respect to our flesh, which cries out for those three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, snacks sometimes too. And uh, we are quieting that so that we can see God break the yoke that the enemy has on our lives. It's, it's getting some clarity about where we are. There is a, a kind of, uh, you know, imaginative Christian life sometimes that we can live that we think we are, the Pharisees, you know, did this a lot, we think we are better than we are. And uh, there, there needs to be this humility, this coming to God moments where we say, give me a clear picture of who I am. Separated, in need, not always truthful, not always honest, not always obedient, not the best dad, you know, not the best husband. God, give me a clear picture so that I can break the yoke of the enemy, which is lying to me, that everything's okay. 
Just keep going like you're going. Just keep moving in the direction you're going to move. Just keep following the path you're following. Everything's going to be cool. God, show me that this yoke might be broken so that I can worship you in spirit and in truth. The second thing that it tells us in this passage that fasting will do is it will realign us with God's missional call upon our lives. God's missional call upon our lives. We have uh, that out on the foyer when you walk in. You know, all the gospel for all the people. Boy, we get caught up as Christians in so many rabbit trails, don't we? We get caught up in doing a lot of good things, and we, we, we sometimes lose sight of what the real mission is, you know? And uh, Peter and, uh, you know, uh, John are at the Gate Beautiful, and uh, there's, a, there's a man there that, you know, is, is crippled, and he thinks what he needs is money. And they don't have any, but they know what he needs is the gospel. <laughs> so they say to him, we don't have any silver or gold, but what we have, we're going to give to you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the Bible says that guy got up and walked from that point forward. He was living a brand new life. We get caught up in, in a lot of things that we think are good things. And there's, there's nothing wrong with a lot of good things that, that Christians are doing, but sometimes they're, they're doing it and, and, and missing out on what the real mission is. Luke 19, 10. Jesus, who's the head of the church, we're the body, right? Your head gets to operate what happens, right? In you know, the directions, you're like, I would like, to, I'm thirsty, it reaches out and grabs a cup of water, but your head that made that decision, you know, to take care of that body. You take the head off, if you could walk around without your head, <laughs> you'd starve to death and thirst to death and run into things, you know. The head is constantly making decisions, the brain, you know, about what, where you should go and what you should do. So Jesus made all the decisions. He's making the decisions for us, right? And I'm so thankful that he is. He's the head, we're the body. And so in Luke 19 and 10, he says, here's why I came. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And uh, we imagine this. We imagine, oh man, Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. But the body can do something completely different. The body can go do other things. <laughs> no, the body's going to do what the head does. If you're a member of the body of Christ, the head says, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. The body has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So he realigns us through fasting with the missional call of God on our lives. And third, lastly here, it opens our ears to hear from God, our hearts to surrender to his will. That's what Esther wanted, was she wanted to really hear from God. She wanted to be confident when she walked in that courtyard that regardless of what happened, God had ordained it. And I believe as she walked in to be seen by the king, that, and, and, and as that story unfolds, he reached his scepter out towards, he was so glad to see her, you know. But as she's walking down the hallway, after three days of fasting, she's confident that God said, walk down this hallway, get into that room. She doesn't know what's going to happen, because she said, I might perish. If I perish, I perish, that's fine. 
But as she came around the corner, she was confident. I have heard from God. God wants a group of people that have heard from Him to begin to move throughout the earth and accomplish His will. He has called us. He said, don't be afraid of those that have the power to kill the body. Be afraid of the one who has power to take body and soul and cast into the eternal lake of fire into hell. We need to have our fear properly placed. Let's fear God and not man. And let's hear from God and obey Him. And that's one thing fasting will do for us is quiet the flesh and give us open ears to hear the voice of God. And he's, if he says, rise up and go, we're going to rise up and go, knowing that we might perish, <laughs> as Esther did. But still, we've heard from God, and he said, rise up and go. And if we perish, to be, Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We're not going to fear someone who has no power over us eternally. We're going to fear God, and we're going to follow him and do what he's asked us to do. Amen. I'm going to invite our, our worship team to come back, and um, I want to give you some instructions for what we're going to do going forward. Um, we're going to do circles of prayer here in just a moment, uh, and as we join in circles of prayer, I'll give you time to do that, then uh, we're going to start with the Lord's Prayer. We're going to pray that together, and then I want you, after we're finished with that, just to kind of go around the circle and each of you share something that you want the, the group to pray about. And after everybody's shared, then I want you to pray as a group over those needs, okay, that are represented in that group. Will you stand with me? Again, I want you to find five or six people nearby. Let's form a circle of prayer. The very first thing that we're going to do is pray the Lord's Prayer together, but I'll wait for you to find your circle and get there. And then we're going to ask one another, how can we pray for you? Okay, so... Let's get ready. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together in your circle. I've got it up here on the screen so you can follow along if you don't have it memorized. Let's begin to pray it together, all right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.